0: But these genes are not, by definition, making a protein that is toxic. Those proteins have a function in our brain. They help us think. They help us move. They help us do things. However, when the brain gets injured, these same proteins are overexpressed. That means they are a lot higher. Their levels are a lot higher. And at high levels, they aggregate. They make clumps. And these clumps are toxic.
1: You're listening to Heroes of Healthcare, the podcast that highlights bold, selfless professionals in the healthcare industry focused on transforming lives in their communities. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the Heroes of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Ted Wayne. Today we're heading into episode 2 of our three-part series on medical innovation. Last week we heard from Dr. Stacy Blaine and her exciting work in cancer cure medications, and today we're going to hear from Dr. Maria Machacini regarding the work her company Anovis is doing to stop the progression of Alzheimer's disease, entering into clinical trials. This promising medication will certainly be interesting for us to learn about. Dr. Maria Machacini received her PhD in biochemistry from the Rockefeller University and was postdoctoral fellow in molecular biology at California Institute of Technology. She worked for large and then small pharmaceutical companies before starting Symphony Pharmaceuticals in the early 1990s going on to start several other pharmaceutical companies has landed dr maria metchikini as ceo of enovis enovis is developing two therapeutics for alzheimer's and parkinson's disease one targets early stage alzheimer's disease and parkinson's and may stop the disease whereas the second targets late stage alzheimer's and may stabilize the decline let's not wait any longer Welcome to the show, Dr. Macchicchini.
0: Thank you very much, Ted, for having me.
1: Today's going to be a great show because we're getting into some areas that we haven't really spent a lot of time on and I've got a lot of interest in, so I'm I'm excited to get in in here. Before we jump in, do you mind sharing with our listeners a little bit about your background and how you got into healthcare?
0: Sure. I think I was always interested in science. I can't remember... Not having been interested in sewing, I started collecting spiders and frogs and worms when I was four or five, and they all disappeared. Eventually, I figured out that my mom would tell my dad to flush them down the toilet. So that didn't work out very well. But I did study zoology because that's what I thought I liked. And then I decided I wanted to know how things work, not how they look. And I got into biochemistry and eventually into biochemistry of the brain. And I thought from a very young age on that the brain was fascinating. And so I stuck with the biology and the biochemistry of the brain. And then eventually I said, okay, we need to start a brain company. And I did.
1: So the first business or entity you started was a, a brain company or a neurological company?
0: Yes. Well, first, I obviously studied for too long, and then I went to large pharma, small pharma. And then I started my first company that was supposed to protect nerve cells from dying in stroke. Needless to say, there is no drug that works in protecting nerve cells from dying in stroke today. So that didn't work out that well. But because we were looking at the brain and genomics was really hot, we did kind of change into genomics of the brain and so we did okay and then I kept thinking I should really keep going back to the brain and eventually I started my second company that was looking at protecting nerve cells from dying in Alzheimer's and as it turns out this company protects nerve cells from dying in Alzheimer's in Parkinson's and also in stroke
1: that's great. So fascinating. So let's go, let's go right in. So novus is the name of the company. And tell us a little bit about, obviously, you just kind of mentioned a little bit what the goal is. But tell us a little bit about what the intention is and what some of the results you're having.
0: So the reason I always wanted to protect nerve cells from dying is that if you really think about it, if a nerve cell is dead, you lose the function. If a nerve cell is sick, you have an incomplete or the wrong function. And everything we do is guided by our nerve cells. Whether we move, whether we are depressed, whether we eat, whether we are happy, whether we are demented, whether we read. If our nerve cells function properly, we will be able to do those things. If they're sick, we'll do them badly. And if they're dead, we can't do them at all. So protecting nerve cells from dying may sound very abstract, but in reality, it is that it protects all our functions and it does everything we want to do. So what our drug does, it does protect nerve cells from dying, and it does it in a very interesting way. When a brain gets injured in any way, it could be too much alcohol, it could be a hit to the head, it could be mercury, it could just be old age. What happens is that several toxic proteins are elevated and these toxic proteins kill nerve cells. What our drug does, it removes these toxic proteins and therefore we prevent the death of the nerve cells.
1: So what and what causes the toxic proteins to be created? Is it the actual injury or like you said the mercury, the alcohol or whatever it is, that's what creates these toxic proteins?
0: Well, we do obviously have those genes, okay, because if we didn't have the genes, they couldn't be made. But these genes are not, by definition, making a protein that is toxic. Those proteins have a function in our brain. They help us think. They help help us move. They help us do things. However, when the brain gets injured, these same proteins are overexpressed. That means They are a lot higher. Their levels are a lot higher. And at high levels, they aggregate. They make clumps. And these clumps are toxic. So as long as they're present in the right and normal amount, they don't form clumps. And they're fine. They function with us. But as soon as they're overexpressed, and that happens when the brain gets injured. It doesn't matter how the brain gets injured. These proteins are overexpressed and then they become toxic.
1: And so, and these are, and you, you talked about Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and, and some of the others, do they have a common toxic protein that is created in those diseases or are they different depending upon whether alcohol is the damage, whether it's an injury whether it's Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, are they different proteins or are they the same proteins?
0: That's a really interesting question because most of us have heard about plaque, which is the main aggregating protein in Alzheimer's. And it is produced when all of those things happen. So, but when all of those things happen, you can also form alpha-synuclein that causes Parkinson's. And when all of those things happen, you can form... well, maybe not Huntington's, but you can form tau, which causes frontotemporal dementia. So the question is why? And I'm not sure we really understand why sometimes one protein is more overexpressed and sometimes another. What we know for a fact is that in Alzheimer's, these proteins are expressed in the cortex where we think, and in Parkinson's, it's more in the substantia nigra where we move, And that is the interesting thing, that while some of them may be the same, some of them may be different, but in all cases, they're in different parts of the brain, and therefore they have different negative
1: effects. Okay, interesting. What is the primary difference between dementia and Alzheimer's?
0: Yes and no. (laughs) So dementia is not a specific disease. Dementia can accompany a lot of diseases. You can get demented in uh, Parkinson's, in late-stage Parkinson's, there is dementia. You definitely get demented in Huntington's, in prion diseases. Eventually, you get demented in ALS, just very, very late. Dementia is when your brain doesn't work anymore in terms of recognizing reality. In Alzheimer's, the first step is not dementia, it's forgetfulness and then disorientation and then eventually dementia. So dementia can be present in a number of diseases, usually more later stage. The first symptoms, as I said, in Alzheimer's are forgetfulness and disorientation. In Parkinson's, is shaking and slurring and shuffling. And in all cases, though, dementia can follow.
1: Okay. Well, thank you. Because I, I, I know from my mother, she was diagnosed with dementia at later stages of her life, but they said, no, it's not Alzheimer's. And I knew there was a difference, but I don't know that I really understood what the exact difference was. I know they both, as you said, eventually manifest themselves the same way, but it's, it's, I guess it's a little bit of how, where it happens and how it manifests itself. So what is a novice trying to do? I understand, you know, you've identified these toxic proteins. So tell me a little bit about your, the drug and what it does and where you guys are in the process.
0: So our drug inhibits the overexpression, the high levels of these toxic proteins. It doesn't totally take take them away, which means they can fulfill their normal function, but they don't get toxic because they don't aggregate. And and our drug does it in every neurodegenerative disease we have tested. In animals, we have tested eight different animal models, which is Alzheimer's, Down syndrome, stroke, traumatic brain injury, Parkinson's, Huntington's, blindness, and bacterial and viral infections. In humans, however, because I wanted to have a drug that works in more than one degenerative disease, we did test it in Alzheimer's and in Parkinson's. So the way the FDA asks you to develop a drug, you start out by phase one, which is safety, phase two, which is efficacy in a few patients, and then phase three, which is efficacy in a lot of patients. And in both cases, in Alzheimer's and in Parkinson's, we have done efficacy in a few patients, which is phase two. And in both cases, we had really nice data. Our drug improved cognition and movement by 30%. So now we are in phase three, which is efficacy in a large number of patients. We have started our Parkinson's study. We have treated so far about 100 patients. They just started treatment. And in Alzheimer's, we are starting phase three in January.
1: Very exciting. thought I heard you say something. So help me clarify. When we had first met, you had talked about that it was not a cure for Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, but it would stop the erosion or the progression of the disease where it is. But I thought I just heard you say you saw a... Improvement. So are you starting to see the some of the results are showing that it's helping get better, or is it really just stopping progress?
0: Well, Ted, we had extremely good phase two data in one month. If we keep up that 30% improvement over 18 months, then my drug is better than I think. But I can't guarantee that. So to be on the safe side, what I hope is that it would stop the course of the disease, which is still pretty good, because if you start early, you really never get bad. And if you start late, well, at least you continue to be capable of closing yourself, eating and doing your daily functions.
1: Sure. And, and what about people, more and more I'm hearing about people are getting the genetic testing And sometimes when they get it, it says you are predisposed for Alzheimer's.
0: Yeah, genetic testing is a double-edged sword. Okay, I happen to have been tested also. But realistically, only 1% of patients with Alzheimer's have the genetic gene. There are three genes that 100% cause Alzheimer's disease. If you have that then you can be 100% sure that somewhere in your 50s or 60s you get Alzheimer's. But that's less than 1%. What you are referring to is the predisposition and higher likelihood. And that is APOE 2, 3, and 4. If you have APOE 4, your chances of getting Alzheimer's are 25% higher. If you have APOE 3, this is what I am. It, you're normal. And if you have APOE2, your chances are lower. But remember, a 25% higher chance is not a death sentence. And sometimes I think that by, you know, if you have the gene and you know that you're going to get it, that's terrible. But at least you can prevent your kids from getting it by doing some planning in, in, uh, in your procreation. Um, which I think is very useful because today, without any abortions, you can really get rid of the gene in in vitro fertilization. However, if it's a predisposition and you have a 25% higher chance, do you want to worry for your whole life about it?
1: Well, Well, and I guess, no, let's hope not. That's why I'm always a little iffy about do I really want to know this (laughs) if there's nothing I can if they're in in cases where there's nothing I can do but what struck me was if I'm then one of the if I'm one of the unlucky ones and I'm one of that 1% and a novice achieves the the approvals with the FDA that it's striving for then theoretically right I would start to take a novice at a young age
0: sure absolutely and, and if there is a drug on the market, absolutely do that. The other thing, the people that are the 1% probably know it. If they have their mother, father, and grandfather die of Alzheimer's in their 50s and 60s and 70s, they know that. Whereas my mom got Alzheimer's in her late 80s and died at 95, she had a good life. It's too bad it ended that way, but she had a good
1: life. Sure. Yes. Okay. So, and and ANOVA, it's one one single drug, is that correct?
0: Yes, it's the same drug because it protects the brain from more than one neurotoxic protein. These proteins have a lot of similarities and therefore one drug can fight them all.
1: Yeah, and that's what I said, because as you said earlier, the Alzheimer's lives in a different part of the brain than Parkinson's, right? But obviously, it doesn't matter. It can identify them and do the work that it's supposed to do. So obviously very exciting for you guys, very exciting for a lot of people. I'm sure the thought that in the not too distant future, somebody could go in having some cognitive challenges, be told this is what, you know, you have Alzheimer's, you have early onset Parkinson's, but we can give you something that will pretty much hold it tight is pretty good. I guess it would be a drug that they would need to take for the rest of their life.
0: Yes, that's what we think.
1: Yes. I
0: mean, what we have seen in mice is that if we discontinue it for two months, the effect remains. After three months, the effect is gone. So theoretically, you could stop it and restart it, but I, I don't know.
1: How do you give a laboratory animal Alzheimer's or Parkinson's to treat it, right? You, they must have to have it in order to, to test it.
0: Well, actually, they They don't, I mean, they wouldn't naturally. Mice are ridiculously resistant to anything dementia-oriented. So what you do, you take the gene that causes Alzheimer's in humans, you take the gene that causes Parkinson's in humans, and you clone it into the mice. And they actually get demented. Um, The Parkinson's mice lose grip strength. they, They get constipated. They don't walk very well. The Alzheimer mice, they forget everything. They can't learn a, a maze. Now, you can also do it more naturally in mice and rats. You can hit them over the head, they get TBI, they get demented.
1: Okay. I didn't know that. And that's very interesting, right? Because my thought was, how do I how do I know it's working in the and the animals if I how do I know that they had the disease in the first place? Very interesting, fascinating. Uh, see, and that's why you like the science. That's what, that's why you're doing what what you love to do. So Let's talk a little bit about what's next for you all. Uh, you're, in the, you're in the trials. You said in January you're starting the phase three, if I think you said that, if I remember that right. And yeah, what's the time frame and what's the hope in terms of best and worst case scenario of FDA approval? So
0: my best case scenario is we're going to have Parkinson's phase three data by the end of the year, Alzheimer's phase three data within the the next spring, then the FDA always wants you to do two studies. And there are two ways of fixing or trying to treat, be that Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. If I give an Alzheimer patient a triple espresso, that person for half an hour to two hours will be actually smarter. Cigarette, nicotine will do the same, but it's not It's not consistent or persistent. I mean, after a few hours, the caffeine and the nicotine have worn off and you're back where you were before. So the FDA makes a distinction between symptomatic, which would be in your caffeine, and disease modifying, of which there is nothing, which would be that it actually slows the course of the disease. So for symptomatic, the data we have in phase two looks pretty good because we improve cognition by 30% in one month. That looks very symptomatic. Now, I would like to show that it improves or at least doesn't worsen cognition in 18 months. So the first study we do in Alzheimer's and in Parkinson's is a short study for symptomatic and then we want to do another study for disease modifying in both diseases. So that would then be an additional 18-month study. An 18-month study takes about three years because you have to recruit several, maybe six, seven, 800 patients and keep them on the drug for 18 months. And it takes a while to recruit them. So with a little bit of luck, we'll be on the market in four years
1: that's you know it's a, that's a, that's a that's a commitment it's a long term i mean i know i've heard that and i know that that's what those things take but i'm sure there's a part of you and a part of a lot of people who says you know this seems to be working let's go let's go but i guess right we have to as you said earlier safety efficacy right so we have to first make sure that enough time has gone with people on this to ensure that there are no more harmful side effects or something Worse than than taking the drug and that only can be done over time.
0: Exactly. And the other negative thing, and I'm talking against myself, but unfortunately, reality has shown that a lot of drugs that work in a small study do not work out in a big study. And it's not quite clear why. I was just going to ask
1: you, I was just going to ask you why.
0: (laughs) Well, one is a small study, you can control everything. If the patient doesn't show up, you can actually send a limo to pick him up. Are you going to do that for 2000 patients? Probably not. Are you going to do that for 18 months? Probably not. Plus in 18 months, people change, they drop out, they have other issues, Long studies are done in more sites. So for instance, you may have a country where the drug works and a country where the drug doesn't work and nobody really knows why. Did the doctors do something different? There are quite a few studies that have worked in one country and not in the other. And the bigger the study, you more the more you make it international. So for instance, our Parkinson's study right now is in 50 U.S. sites and 50 European sites. And the 50 European sites are in six different countries. So nobody really knows the why. Whether, you know, the French talk differently or their doctor is more skeptical, nobody really knows. But the reality is that in phase two, a lot of drugs work and in phase three, very often they fall short.
1: So, and then I, you know, when I think about the testing, the coordination of, you know, of uh, 2,000 people, people drop out. So, do you try to test more people knowing that you'll only end up with a certain number who will finish it?
0: Yes. So, we actually include the dropout rate. In our case, in our calculation, power calculation, we include the 25% dropout. As of today, we have zero. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, of course, we haven't been in the clinic for that long, but yes.
1: Right. But early early indication is, is good.
0: Yes. But we kind of thought so because it doesn't have side effects at the doses we are using. But still, you know, you, you never know what happens to people. They may all go on strike. So we calculated for a 25% dropout rate.
1: And so if you start at 2000, you drop out... 500, 25%, you end up with 1,500, and that's acceptable to the FDA?
0: Oh, the FDA doesn't care how many you use. You can use two patients. The FDA cares that you show statistical significance. So the bigger your effect, if your effect is homongous, you don't need much more than 50 patients. But for instance, lecanemab, uh, the first drug that shows an effect in Alzheimer's disease, it shows a 27% improvement over placebo. That means that people get 73% worse because placebo drops 100%, 27% above that is minus 73. Well, they used 860 patients per group And you do that with three groups. And the reason they used so many patients, they didn't expect a huge effect, and they were right because because they used so many patients, they have statistically significant data. If they had used half as many patients, that those would everything would have been the same, except the outcome would have not been statistically significant.
1: Okay, makes that makes makes sense. So obviously. The other part of this is this is an extremely expensive prospect because, you know, I mean, four years of continued lab work and follow up and the patients and the documentation. And I think I had somebody once said the amount of paperwork to get a drug approved with the FDA could fill up a tractor trailer.
0: Yes. And now everything is electronic. So it just clocks up your box. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so it just takes hard disk space versus uh, versus the paper. So how do you go about, without prying too much, how do you go about the funding situation? Is this a a small group, self-funded? And I know recently the U.S. government has committed that Parkinson's and Alzheimer's was going to be their target investment for eradication. And how does that come into play?
0: It actually doesn't. (laughs) So I, I, I shouldn't be so blunt. It depends at what stage, okay? I lived for 10 years on government grants because, and some additional money. I had 7 million from investors and 7 million from the government. Those were my first 10 years. And I could do that because I was in animals. The government is really good at funding early research. They are not quite as good at funding advanced clinical trials. Now, in all fairness, I mean, early research, you give somebody two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars, they can do a study in a mouse. You give them a million, they can do a study in a rat. Okay, well, to do the small study we did for phase two in humans, it was seven million. The Parkinson's study we are doing right now is around 22 million. The Alzheimer's study we are starting in January is around 22, 23 million. So, if the government started giving everybody who asked 30 million or 20 million, they'd run out of money really fast. So, their money is mostly for early research. Every so often, they have programs where they also do later stage work. Okay, so I'm not saying they absolutely don't do it, but uh, we just applied for it and they basically said, give it you need more data. So basically they will do your latest research when they're sure they're not throwing 30 million down the drain. So um, you know, I was kind of stuck. My investors were not that rich. They couldn't finance20 million dollar studies, and I was I didn't want to do any more animals. I got plenty of animals. I wanted to go into humans to prove the drug works in humans. So, being a scientist, I decided we're going to go public. My chairman told me I was crazy. I go, "Well, so maybe I'm crazy. We're going to go public." And he says, "You know nothing about it." I said, "So what?" <laughs> I mean, we need the money. And if we die, we die, okay? But I need the money and I can't get it privately. And so we went public.
1: So a novice is a publicly traded company.
0: Yes, we are publicly traded.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. I and guess what I, I didn't that's really- a pro- that's when you shouldn't assume. I assumed you weren't because you're a small startup. I didn't realize. So, interesting.
0: Yeah. No, we went public with two people.
1: Mhm. Oh, I, and I know you can do that. I, I have a back in my early days I came out of Wall Street. So, and uh, I know you can do that, but I just I didn't realize that you guys had
0: well, it was desperation, Ted. I, right. I, you know, I mean, I need the money. I If I, I, just... I want to do
1: this good work, yes. I need to fund yes. it.
0: Yes. So anyhow, we got public. We raised, uh, we raised 14 and then we raised another 55. So we are slowly, we have enough money for the two studies I discussed. We are slowly getting ready to raise money for the much larger studies that will be 18 months. And what is very interesting is that zeros are becoming relative. You know, when I was early on, okay, I thought three, four hundred thousand is enough for an animal model. Perfect, right? But three, four hundred thousand, you do nothing in humans. Nothing, absolutely nothing. So all of a sudden you start adding zeros and 250 million just sounds like a quite achievable number of money.
1: So, is that what you're anticipating to get this to market will be the final number, $250 And so, the way you're doing that is through additional raises into the public market? Yeah. Okay. So, you're doing different series, Series A, Series B, Series C?
0: Yeah. uh, Yes. I mean, so far, we have done two raises, and we probably will need another
1: two. Oh, interesting. Okay, great. Great. Well, congratulations. That's not an easy... That's not easily done. I, you know, I appreciated your investor saying we don't know anything about going public, but you you can do it. And uh, um, and if you got enough market and you got enough, uh, you know, sometimes you just need the money to go public. That's the other thing too, because it's not—it's not, well, not,
0: not an inexpensive proposition went,
1: between lawyers and investment no, bankers. No,
0: that was a huge—that <laughs> was a huge I- I- issue, because I realized I needed a million. There was no way I had a million. Went to my investors and I convinced them that to give me half a million, and then I went to everybody and I made these interesting deals that they hated me for, but they made them. That if it go that we cap how much I pay them, if it doesn't work, it's capped, and if it works, I pay the rest afterwards, and it worked. They 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 all got the money, but the cap was really low.
1: Good for you. Kind of the difference between a guaranteed IPO and a best efforts, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Good for you. Congratulations. So, what's next is it really just continuing to follow the course and run the process and follow the trials and just continue to to fight the slow fight.
0: Yeah, one of the interesting issues in the right now is that we have high, we are hiring people, and it's not that easy to grow from two to ten, because it I mean maybe from hundred to hundred and ten is just ten percent, but from two to ten is a huge, huge difference. And it really shows. It's um, you know we, we have a hard time gelling. Some gel well. Some is a little harder. It, and then the other thing is because we're all super achievers, it's hard to hire people because they come in and somebody says yeah, and then somebody else comes in yeah. I mean, so having this this super group of people makes it harder to hire.
1: Sure. No, absolutely. I I I totally understand that and and yes, you know, the company I'm working with right now, we've increased uh headcount by 30% year over year. We're having to pay close attention to culture, to operations, to a lot of things that, you know, got us to the level we were that let us say let's invest more in more people to help us continue to leverage the momentum we had, but we're trying to very keenly Keep uh, attention to that new population, because the people who bought into the vision who got us to where we were, all of a sudden you have 30 percent people who they weren't around for those stories. They weren't around for that, that cultural change and the cultural drive and the and the commitment to the to the journey. So, yeah, you have lots of challenges in doing this, but you're building a company and obviously building something that's going to make a big difference so was that your dream? Was that how this got started? Was you wanted to find a drug to cure Alzheimer's or cure Parkinson's?
0: To protect nerve cells from dying.
1: Yeah, like Honestly, you said earlier.
0: I wasn't, I was not, I mean, if it had worked in stroke, I may have then expanded into Alzheimer's, but it didn't work in stroke. So I started with Alzheimer's and now we're expanding into stroke. Protect nerve cells from dying. I really think that with sick nerve cells, we are sick. And with dead nerve cells, we are a vegetable. If we can protect nerve cells from dying, we can really prevent us, not from aging in the sense that we're not going to have cardiovascular disease or cancer or whatever, but it, it, it will help us die with dignity.
1: Yes, for sure. So let, let's, let's jump ahead and what, sometimes, the, what do we call in life, the unintended consequences are potentially an unintended consequence of this drug with the assumption is that it does what you said it does, is people begin to try to take it preemptively, prophylactically, so that they can drink or they can do other things and feel like, well, that's okay. I'm on a novice and my brain is protected.
0: Yes, Absolutely. So there are two parts to that. One is we will eventually, it's not in my first run of things to do, but we will eventually do a preventative study. And that will be mostly in things like TBI, in sports, in car crashes, in, uh, in, in accidents in the war. And, of course, that can be used as a negative because somebody can say, okay, I'm going to do all the binge drinking I want. This thing here protects my brain from, from degenerating. And the truth is, I don't know that, okay? If we have data, dayd-
1: not, not to mention what it does to the liver. Well, yeah, liver, I'm <laughs> right, pretty
0: so. sure there's not, nothing I'm going to do about it. But let's say it does prevent nerve cells from dying in stroke, okay? Would it do that in alcohol? I don't know. I, it, it would probably do it in any car of car in any kind of car crash. It would do it in any kind of hit because it's all similar. But in something especially like alcohol or mercury poisoning, or drugs, I don't know because that's such a different mechanism.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I didn't think of that. But, but obviously, like you said, for sports medicine, the, the football players and things like that. If we know that this can do that and I'm going to choose a career of professional sports or, or impact sports, then I may start to do this at least during the time I'm playing.
0: Oh, absolutely. In fact, I would recommend it. I mean, I can't right now because I have no data other than in rats, but in rats I can hit them over the head and they do fine. Uh, so if you believe in rats, absolutely take, it, take a pill before every single game.
1: Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. This has been fascinating, and I love the. I love that recently we've been getting into some of this future technology, um, medicines, and different tech that's coming out in the healthcare world, and it is an exciting time. A lot of news coming out almost every week. There's something new coming out about different ways uh, of preventing things and everything from HIV to cancer to now obviously neurological issues as well. But before we head out, I always like to ask a question: Who was your hero? When I
0: was a kid, everybody had posters of singers and movie stars on their walls, and I had Einstein. So um,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think I stick with Einstein. Besides, he's non-controversial.
1: <laughs> that's that's true. That's true. Well, you would be, you'd be my I had my father on the show, and uh, it was one of the first shows we did, and he was in his uh, 90s when he did the show and some of his were heroes when he was growing up, but he was a big Einstein fan as well. He used to read a lot of his stuff and he just thought he was brilliant and everything as well. So, um, And you know also,
0: uh, sorry if I interrupt, but you know also why I like Einstein? He did a lot of things from his gut. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm writing a patent right now, doesn't matter on what. And, and, and the lawyer asked me, why do you know that? I said, my gut.
1: You trust your gut, right?
0: Yeah, because there are people that know a lot of things and do a lot of things because they can calculate it. We still haven't quite figured out how to calculate everything Einstein did or said, but he was right. I mean, you know, now they start having new theories, okay? But what I'm saying is there are people that are more intuitively intelligent. And he was extremely intuitive, intelligent. And I really admire that.
1: Yeah, and whether you call it intuitive or lucky, right? There's the expression better lucky than smart. Sometimes you just make the right choice, you know, it was a fifty-fifty, and you went to the left, and the left was right, and you know, and you could have gone the other way and been wrong. But sometimes it just works out that way. Well, this has been a delight. I appreciate your time and your and your hard work and your and you know, obviously, it's a it's a lifetime labor of love for you. I think it's awesome that you've you've you had a purpose and a passion very early on, and you've continued to pursue it. And I, and I really love your spirit of nothing's going to, not, it's not going to get in my way. Go get money. Don't worry about it. Well, I'll find it, <laughs> whether it go public or, or, uh, or however, we'll figure it out. And, uh, and I love that entrepreneurial spirit in you um, and how you've applied your, your education to it. So thank you for all the work you do.
0: Thank you so much, Ted. And I really, th- I really hope it works just for all the people that need it.
1: Absolutely. If for nothing else. Right. Let's just be let's just help people be better and do better. And and let's make sure. And at the same time, let's reward those who were willing, like yourself and your investors who were willing to be bold enough to put the money at it in order to in order to obviously see a return on investment, but also to see this great body of work done. Well, thanks so much. And we hopefully we can talk again soon.
0: Okay, it was great talking to you.
1: Bye-bye. You've been listening to Heroes of Healthcare. For more, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit us at heroesofhealthcarepodcast.com.